Yo, Ethan here. Welcome to another episode of Tech as a Lifestyle, the podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Vigi, a tech creator on YouTube. Here, we talk about everything from tech to YouTube to content creation and everything else in between. So here's today's episode. Enjoy. So I'm not even going to bother with an explanation of what we're doing today because I myself don't know. I'm just going to talk off the top of my head about everything that Apple has been doing over the past few years that are particularly interesting. And the reason I'm dedicating a whole episode to them is that if I were to try and talk about anything else, we would end up with an hour-long episode, and I'm not interested in editing that. Let's talk about ports first, because the iPhone, it's been put in a weird spot. So the EU, the European Union, in July, announced that it's looking to establish a universal connector for all phones and would enforce it on all devices. This means that Apple would have to make a USB-C iPhone because, well, USB-C would be that universal connector. Well, that seems simple enough. Why don't they just make one? Well, simply put, it's all about money. Tons and tons of money. Apple has something called an MFI program, which stands for Made for iPhone. Now, all accessories made, which use a lightning port, have to go through this program, otherwise they get hit with a hard lawsuit for sure. This MFI program is extremely rigid, and Apple enforces a hefty $4 per item fee on the seller. So, every time you buy a single charging cable that's not from Apple, or a dongle, or a stand, or anything with a lightning charger built in, the manufacturer is paying Apple $4 every time you purchase that single item. So the amount of money Apple generates is unfathomable. And since this market is a multi-billion dollar one, losing this market would be fatal for Apple. So if the EU forces them to make a USB-C iPhone, what must one do? Ah, make a portless iPhone. MagSafe is a step in that direction. But wait, isn't MagSafe G compatible? How does Apple profit then? You see, MagSafe is a completely custom technology made by Apple themselves that happens to be backwards compatible with G wireless standards, not the other way around. But still, how does Apple snag a profit here? People can still buy a G charger, right? Well, Apple's MagSafe allows for charging at 15 watts, but it's only compatible with 7.5 watt G, which automatically makes MagSafe compatible chargers much more attractive, and hence the MFI program still does its job. Pretty ingenious if you ask me. And why does a portless iPhone even have a chance? Well, removing a bulky port like the lightning port frees up space to place a larger battery which was shrunk in the iPhone 12 series to make space for all of that 5G tech which also consumed tons and tons of battery. And removing the lightning port is the only chance of Apple still continuing to make a mini version of their iPhone. What's actually quite interesting because people keep saying that going portless is impossible. Well, no one transfers data over Lightning. I know that because Apple has capped Lightning to USB 2. No one is transferring data at those speeds. Apple has also created a system such that all products connect wirelessly. Like AirPods, you bring them close to your iPhone and boom, connected. AirDrop is 100% wireless as you already know. And now even universal control. There really isn't a reason for Apple to not ditch ports on the iPhone. And believe me, when it comes, 
other smartphone companies are gonna struggle to replicate that because they didn't set it themselves up for it as well as Apple did. Maybe Samsung could do it, but not as early as Apple will. So, I already made a blog post about this on my brand new website, techislifestyle.wordpress.com, where I publish weekly stories mostly on topics we don't discuss here on the podcast, like how Intel can revive itself, what really happened to OnePlus, etc. So head on over to techthelifestyle.wordpress.com for exclusive text stories. Now, let's change gears and delve into how Apple's incredible optimization could also be holding it back. Every single one of their phones work on the same software and are optimized for the same apps. And Apple needs to ensure that they keep a reasonable level of similarity between each generation so as to keep that chain going. And once the support period of one phone ends, for example, the iPhone 8, they can then begin the upgrades that they held back and continue this for every future iPhone. Think of it this way. If Apple suddenly added 8 or 16 gigs of RAM to the iPhone 13, all of a sudden, which phone should Apple optimize? Apple tries to optimize all of their phones identically, and suddenly with the spec bump, Apple's model falls apart. But interestingly enough, they also took a chance with the M1 iPad Pro and gave it 16 gigs of RAM, because that was their prime focus in that branch of products. But for iPhones, Apple needs to consider the entire landscape before they do anything. And this actually might stifle innovation for the iPhone because optimization always is in the back of their ideas. Then we have to talk about Apple's relationship with leakers. Apple has never liked leakers. And you can't blame them. A lot of hype can die once some information is leaked. Apple has cracked down on internal info leakers by firing and suing them. They just did one as recently as June of this year. Then we had this predicted March event, which was supposed to happen, according to all of the most reputed leakers by the likes of Mark Gurman, John Brosnan, hashtag Fapata, Kang, Love to Dream, etc. All of the leakers received the exact same info, but it wasn't true, like at all. This isn't something that we've ever seen where every single leaker was wrong. My very strong assumption is that Apple purposely fed this info to the leakers using an internal system that was designed Trick them. And as to how John Prosser got just this one person to leak the accurate launch date in April, it's most likely someone higher up or someone who designed the system themselves. It's just too strange of a coincidence for it to be innocent enough to just be classified as a eh, mistake. We also saw towards the end of June, a lot of non-US based leakers were warned by Apple's lawyers to stop leaking company product information. Otherwise, they would sue them. And then a crazy story came out on FrenchPageTech.com about how Apple is going to make employees wear police-grade body cam. Is that even warranted? Like every other company doesn't go to these lengths to stop leakers, then why does Apple do it so aggressively? Well, for them, they realize the impact that they have on the industry. (laughs) Headphone jack. And in case a certain new feature gets leaked ahead of time, it can absolutely be detrimental to them. And I kind of sort of understand their motive, but I don't agree with this level of aggression for the cause. Just take a chill, Mr. Cookie. But despite them being sneaky on that end, there is no denying that Apple's SLC engineering is remarkable. But what exactly does M1 in particular look like on the inside? Apple hasn't really given a lot of information as to what is actually inside this black box called the M1. 
but as more people are fiddled with it and as more products with M1 come out, we have a pretty good idea of what the M1 SoC really looks like. Almost. Apple's M1, like I mentioned before, is really a black box and we almost never will know exactly what's inside. So keep that in mind. Let's first talk about Apple coming out with the Mac Minis with 10 gig networking much later than the first launch, which blew a lot of people away. But here's the thing about the 10 gig standard. The 10 gig speed is what one port can achieve independently. So if the other port, 10 gig ports start getting used, the bandwidth begins to split the speed and the speeds drop down slowly. But surprisingly, in a lot of tests, the bandwidth didn't go down on any of the ports, which leads to the conclusion that the controllers are independent and aren't shared. But despite this, why do Macs have such limited I.O. as of now? Well, my guess is that they tried to expand their I.O. controller, but it caused instability issues with the CPU design of the M1 and the TDB cap that they put in place. Second, the M1 is not their pro-level processor, and Apple's intention was never to have it the fanciest I.O. Interestingly enough, we don't know exactly how the lanes are linked because Apple doesn't release a chipset diagram like Intel and AMD, but part of the reason being that they don't need to because of the tight integration of macOS and Apple Silicon. Their business model is essentially just that. If it isn't necessary, don't release it. Apple understands its impact on both customers and the industry, and they are wicked clever about what and how they reveal information. I think people have also severely misunderstood what Apple and ARM have in terms of a relationship. Apple doesn't rely on ARM anymore. The architecture is custom. Apple built their own architecture, unlike companies like Nvidia and Qualcomm, because, well, they're Apple. They just use the ARM64 instruction set, nothing else. Apple owns that set and is building custom essentially everything. And M1 is Apple's own and not ARM's. Also, a fact that people don't realize is that Apple built an incredibly powerful graphic system on their own with nobody else involved. Built from scratch and it has the performance that beats out Intel's iGPUs and AMD's APUs by a sweet mile or in some cases, at least trades blows with them. Apple also interestingly discontinued three different products quite recently. We'll go over each of them individually. First being the iMac Pro. Not the regular iMac, not the silver iMac, but the space gray high core count Xeon based iMac Pro got poofed. That's actually quite interesting because Apple did not discontinue any other Intel based Macs in this period, which could mean one of two things. One, they don't think whatever M1X iMac Pro they're going to launch most likely, it's not going to be a compelling enough upgrade for those who buy this Mac. And Apple doesn't want to have to do anything with that. That's a tongue twister. Or two, they just want to make room on the assembly lines for the M1X iMacs because they project it to sell extremely well and they don't want to use up components in building Intel iMacs, especially in the middle of a processor shortage. Second, the discontinuation of the HomePod. It's not as surprising because that just can't sell because they introduced a killer deal of a replacement with the HomePod mini for $99, which is infinitely cheaper, miles better, and has a much better feature set. So, I mean, we sort of expected it to get murdered. Then the iPhone 12 mini was discontinued as well. In my reaction to the launch of the iPhone 12 series, I said that the regular iPhone 12 would be more popular and that the mini wouldn't succeed as well. Well, 
when hype around it increased, everybody seemed to love the new form factor. Apple seemed to have nailed it, but then it happened. The fall came around and people weren't happy with the battery life and Apple MDK'd murder that killed the M mini iPhone. Apple most likely won't be doing a mini iPhone anytime soon unless they're able to shrink and make the 5G tech more efficient or some crazy battery tech comes out that allows more power in a smaller space like a multi-stack fat boy battery. Oh, whoa, 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 wait a second. Aren't we seeing leaks for an iPhone 13 mini? That's true, which is exactly why we should expect some crazy, crazy tech to be packed inside the iPhone 13 mini for this exact reason. I don't know why I'm talking like that. Apple has tweaked their ecosystem quite a bit in recent times and actually in an opposite direction than what we would expect from a company which focused so many years of their existence into tightly knitting a mesh around its user to seal them off from the outside world. Yes, Apple is opening up, loosening those threads, retracting that garden wall just a little bit. They now market in relation to competition and not generationally. They openly collaborate and promote third-party accessories in their events like Logitech, Belkin, etc., which is very not Apple-like. Sure, they earn more by getting that MFI tax, but they never did it that way up until quite recently. Then we also saw them be willing to actually retract the garden wall in favor of a feature, something Apple has not done often in the past. By allowing Android NFC-equipped smartphones to scan AirTags, Apple is prioritizing essential features for the user over its goals of a locked-off system. Apple has seen tremendous success with this approach, and you know why? The fundamentals of building a digital ecosystem really has one very key rule, and that is ensure that all of your important main products work to their full potential mostly, inside and outside the ecosystem. Do not brute force your customers. I know this is weird while talking about Apple, and this is why many ecosystem aspiring companies fail massively because they severely restrict the abilities of their products to work independent of the mother system. The last thing you want is your customers spending a chunk of their savings on one of your products only to realize that they'll need to shell out more for it to work as advertised. And it's well known that bad customer experiences ruin, destroy, and plummet a company's destiny. For as long as Apple decided to come to the Indian market, people have been loud in voicing their opinions about Apple's questionable decisions. Number one is perhaps the most well-known reason why Apple is not just not doing that well here. Pricing. Apple has a really, really sharp disparity in pricing and it's sort of warranted, but that does not make it ideal. Import prices were super high because of their value internationally. Also, for their manufacturing within India, it's super expensive for Apple because labor is so much more expensive in India as compared to China. And also, factory-related costs are way more here. Number two, delayed manufacturing. So within India, Apple only started manufacturing the iPhone 12 in March of this year. Until then, Apple was only manufacturing the 10R and 11 in India. No product models were manufactured here, nothing like that, which significantly slows down supply. When they came in 2017, they took a half-hearted chance in this market. They didn't believe that it, they would be able to handle the market, and they are kind of sort of right. If you take a look at the demographic of the smartphone market in the eastern side, it's mostly dominated, or rather it's absolutely dominated by the eastern companies, 
BBK's sister brands, Samsung, Xiaomi, etc. absolutely own the market. For Apple to come in with their business model, their pricing, and their products, it will take nothing short of a miracle for them to really compete across all demographics. Whew, this was one long episode, guys. So thank you everyone for sticking around this long. We discussed so much today. We talked about the portless iPhone. We talked about leakers. We talked about Apple Silicon. We talked about the product discontinuations that Apple has done. And we talked about how they have failed in the Indian market. So hope you guys enjoyed. Hit that follow button to support the podcast. Head over to techlifestyle.wordpress.com and check out our blog. And until next time, stay cool and I'll see you next time.